Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I'm Charles Henderson. I'm one of the summer interns here, so if I mess anything up, please be kind. Um, but before I introduce our, our guest speaker, um, the Institute of World Politics is a graduate school of national security and international affairs dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of the international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft based on the knowledge and appreciation of the founding principles of the American political economy and the Western moral, tra moral traditions. This lecture is sponsored by um, the Koshku, Chair of Polish Studies, and the Center of um, Interim Studies. So uh, our guest, Brandon um, Weikert, is a former congressional staffer and the founder of the Weikert Report. His book on national security space policy will be released shortly. Later this year. Yeah. Later this year. Um, Brandon holds a BA in political science from DePaul University and is an associate member of the New College at Oxford University. Recently, Brandon obtained his master's in statecraft and national securities, security affairs here um, at the Institute of World Politics uh, with a specialization in defense policy. Um, on top of being a contributor to conservative uh, publication, American Greatness, Brandon does not. Uh, the speaking engagements, uh, presents papers, and conducts media interviews. He has been featured in BBC World News, uh, World Update with Dan Damon. He has been interviewed by the Christian Science Monitor. He has appeared in the Dino Report with Dino Costa, and ha uh, he has been featured on the Seth and Chris show, offering his expertise as a national security and foreign policy specialist. Without further ado, here's Brandon. How's everybody doing? Thanks for coming out today. Um, today we're trying to figure out the question that has been posed a lot recently, which is, what is the French role in the Russo-German alliance? And uh, we're going to start here. To understand what's going on in European, specifically French politics today, you have to look back to 1815, which was when Napoleon was defeated, uh, French military power was in the decline, and uh, their longtime old rival, the, the British Empire, was ascendant with a major, major uh, monopoly of, of naval power. Uh, and then also, of course, more troublingly for the French, the rise of a unified, powerful German state next door. Uh, these two factors, more than anything, started to shift the way that the French viewed their foreign policy and national security. Um, within a few decades after the, the loss of Napoleon, the, the Franco-Prussian War erupted between the, the Prussians and the French, and the Prussians, which were the basically the, the, the leaders, the warrior caste of the German states, um, the, the Prussians crushed the French in about a year. Um, from that point onward, the, from that point onward, sorry, from that point onward, the, the French began looking at a way to contain the rising industrial might of Germany, so they made a deal with the British which was to basically rely on British naval power as a deterrence against uh, Germany really pushing for war. The British could uh, blockade German ports, and then at the same time, the, uh, the, the French pivoted and made an alliance with the Russians, which were a large land army, uh, land, uh, land force. So 
those two, that, that agreement they thought would protect them, it would create a balance of power scenario in Europe. Uh, and the, the deal with uh, Russia lasted from the 1890s until 1912. It should be noted, though, that going back to the 1870s, the French had been looking for ways to align closer with Russia as a means to force Germany to not be so militant because the French were the number one targets of, of Germany. And so they were trying to figure out a way to, with a reduced military power after the Napoleonic Wars, trying to figure out a way to complicate the Germans' threat to France. Uh, another, another important aspect that informs French policies today is the, the two world wars. Um, in the, the French were yet again, their fears of Germany were realized when the Germans decided in both world wars at the start to focus almost exclusively on fighting the French, French and trying to take them out. Now in the first world war they were, it was the miracle on the Marne, the first battle of the Marne, the, the French were able to hold on and prevent the, the German advance uh, at great cost. Um, and of course, the introduction of American forces in World War I was instrumental for, from preventing uh, France from being conquered. Uh, the Russians, their, their allies, collapsed during that war, of course, because of the Bolshevik Revolution, which was aided in large part by the German intelligence services. They funded Lenin's expedition, they pulled him out from exile, and they, they put him into Russia to do his, his dastardly deeds. Uh, in World War II, there was no miracle on the Marne, and the Germans conquered France in short order. If it was not for the Anglo-American force uh, liberating uh, France, who knows what would have happened in terms of how long the occupation could have gone on. Uh, the, when the, they came out of the war, the French Empire, such as it was, was hanging out by a thread, but decolonization would pretty much put an end to the French Empire as we understand it in terms of colonial holdings. Indochina would be lost, Algeria, uh, elsewhere. It's important to note something about the Allied, uh, the, the, the Allied disconnect, the dissonance between the Allies and the interwar years, between World War I and II. France, yet again, in, in between the wars, was trying to create a new balance of power paradigm that would keep what they believed a resurgent Germany at bay. They believed that the Germans, and they were right, the Germans were, were not living up to the Armistice Treaty, that they were looking for ways constantly to undermine it, that their disarmament was actually not what they were saying it was. The British were skeptical, the Americans really didn't care. The Russians were dealing with the fallout from the, the Bolshevik Revolution, and of course ultimately the Russians would briefly align with the Germans during the interwar period uh, with the Treaty of Apollo. Um, so the French were trying to figure out a way with their reduced power, with their reduced uh, demographic strength, they were trying to figure out a way they can prevent Germany from rising again to challenge them. Balance of power. Fortunately, though, the British actually, every time the French would start agitating for greater military commitments from, uh, against uh, Germany, the British were not listening, and they thought actually the French were trying to become revanchists and not the Germans. So this, this ultimately ended in the Treaty of Lucarno because the French wanted to use the newly established Polish corridor, what we refer to here as the Intermarium States, to the east of Germany uh, to balance against uh, a rise in Germany. At the same time, France wanted to balance against Germany west of the Rhine. They needed British military guarantees. The, the British haphazardly gave it, and ultimately the Treaty of Lucarno was not what prevented, it never, didn't help to prevent a rise in Germany. Um, at, at its heart, after the Second World War, after decolonization, 
France was a spec force. They were trying to figure out a way they can still be powerful, still be have the influence that they once had before losing so much. And Charles de Gaulle arose to power. He basically created the modern French state. He was the first president of France after the uh, after the, the war ended. And um, he was trying to figure out his foreign policy, his national policies were all about the politics of Europe. And answering the question, uh, how does France end the violent cycle of competition that has dominated Europe since 1871 with the reduced capabilities that France uh, had at that point? Um, today's Europe, much like then, is governed, I think, closely to this quote by John Holzman, in 2003, the continental Europe of today remains divided into Gaulist and Atlanticist camps, a Europe of many voices where the nation state is again seen as the primary unit of foreign policy. Decision making will best suit American interests well into the future. This was during the Iraq War imbroglio when we were having problems with France uh, diplomatically. That's, a, that's an interesting thing to hang on to. Please remember that quote because we will be getting back to that. Um, but in terms of de Gaulle, he crafted a, a program, Gaullism is what it became known as, and it was basically an assertion of France's right to be a major independent state and have a major independent role in not just European politics, but international relations, all international politics as well. Um, it, in the domestic side, it wanted a very large outsized role for the central government in uh, French economics, uh, it was Keynesian, and it was staunchly anti-communist. It's important to note that the France of today, like much of, much of the democracies around the world, is a social democracy, so it, it automatically favors greater uh, centralization of power with, with the uh, government in Paris, as well as a greater role of uh, government action in the private sector. Um, going off of this notion of French independence, even though they were completely depleted and left laid low by the world wars and the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War before that and of course the Napoleonic Wars before that, the, the de Gaulle came up with the concept for force de frappe. Um, and no, this is not a new Starbucks drink. Uh, this is, this is a, means an independent nuclear strike force. Uh, and de Gaulle was not only more right-leaning, not more of a nationalist, French nationalist, he was also someone who disbelieved the American security guarantees. Going into the Cold War, when after the World War was ended, Soviet Union was a threat to Europe. America, as some of you may know, created NATO. We, we fostered European integration as a means of countering the Soviet revanchism. And we also guaranteed the independence of Western Europe with our own nuclear deterrent. We extended, nuclear, uh, we extended our nuclear umbrella over Europe. De Gaulle did not believe this. He thought that this was only worth what it was written on paper. He didn't think that we would actually follow through. In fact, he wasn't alone. The British also thought this as well. This is one of the reasons why the British ultimately ended up developing their own nuclear arsenal. Um, what De Gaulle wanted to do was to uh, create a small arsenal. He didn't believe it could be something big the way that the Americans and Russians had it. But he wanted to have enough of potency to tear an arm off of the Soviets if they ever attacked. And uh, the logic of the engagement was um, it would deter the Soviets if they ever invaded Western Germany. It would deter them from going beyond the Rhine because they wouldn't want to risk their forces. Now, knowing Soviet military doctrine as I do, I, I'm not sure that 
10, 20, or even 100 nukes at the France's disposal would have really deterred the Soviets in the event of all-out war, but de Gaulle figured he'd give it the old college try. Um, and I say he was distrustful of America's uh, commitment to France. And also we have to remember, de Gaulle was a man who came up in the last phases of the, you know, the French patriotism, the France being great, and uh, he witnessed the, the depletion of France in the world wars, and he was looking for a means to maintain French power uh, away from having to become what he worried would be a, a vassal state of the, the U.S. And obviously him, he being an anti-communist didn't absolutely not want to have to risk Soviet uh, occupation of France the way that they split Germany and Eastern Europe away. Um, and just a joke there. Um, the conflict for, for de Gaulle, and indeed the conflict for Europe and, and France today, is what de Gaulle dubbed the crisis of mixed sovereignty versus European, uh, French European hegemony, or at least French military supremacy on the continent. Um, de Gaulle jealously guarded French sovereignty, and he would get involved with, like he was a classic practitioner of realpolitik. He would get involved with alliances, but he had reservations, and there were a series of caveats, and he was going to do ultimately what was in France's interests, not in the perceived inter shared interests of Europe. Of course, at this point in time, Europe inter European integration was still just getting started. Um, and he worried, and I think rightly so, that um, the only way that he could achieve his other goal of having this dominant, outsized position, uh, uh, role in European and international affairs was through multilateral organizations uh, in, the, in Europe, with France being the most dominant one there. The problem was that means he would have to give up some of the French sovereignty to these multilateral organizations. And um, his concern was that the other European states, at best, would only give up a modicum of sovereignty. And therefore, you'd have mixed sovereignty, where you have this multilateral organization, whether it be NATO or the EU, what we now know as the EU, um, and that it couldn't work at a time of crisis because as long as those European leaders are still beholden to their nation's electorate, the individual electorates of each nation, they would do what was in their nation's best interests. And the minute you had one European state start cleaving away from the herd, they would all start trying to make deals, whether it was in the face of a Soviet invasion or some other or an economic crisis. And so he worried about the mixed sovereignty issue. And this has been a a key concern that has dominated uh, many, many French leaders, even as they have ceded more sovereignty over the last 30 years. Uh, at the same time, de Gaulle recognized, this is a great quote from him, that France alone could not hope to match the global superpowers. There's no way. And this was, this was the logic behind enmeshing himself or France in some of these multilateral agreements, but obviously not, not becoming too involved in them where he would have to cede sovereignty. Um, the thing, the thing about the thing about France's position in, in Europe is that during the Cold War, it always had to balance its, its its desires against the fact that there was this hulking Soviet force right over the horizon. After the end of the Cold War, the Soviet threat went away, and the French and the Germans as well, understandably, said, well, "Let's." It's a new market. Let's try to do business. Let's try to let's try to make more diplomatic, you know, arrangements, uh, amicable arrangements with the Russians. Now that the Soviets are gone, the communists are dead. 
Um, well, communism is dead, rather, kind of. Um, but uh, so they focus instead of trying to to worry about the kind of more traditional military side of the geopolitical balance. They looked at the the economic. They thought that well, we're still we're still a prime uh, premier economy, so we can dominate Europe. You know, Germany after reunification, they still were not they still were not what they what they were still not anything to compete with France, which was united and. It was modern, and they did—they didn't have the history of being divided the way the Germans did during the Cold War. Of course, that assumption would, as you know, prove not prove out. But at the time, it made sense for French leaders in in the 90s, like Chirac and Sarkozy, and into the 2000s, um, to start willingly cede more and more sovereignty away because they figured if it's an economic union that we're going to build. Well, that's fine because we are a dominant economic power and we also have a large military force, so we'll be able to be the first among equals on the continent in any new EU, any new European integration, which ended up being the European Union. Uh, the Germans, of course, were fine with this. They went along with it. It was very much a Franco-German uh, initiative. The Treaty of Maastricht was, was driven through largely by uh, French and German uh, interests. Um, and this gets us into another issue of Atlanticism. And there's a big question mark over uh, the recent president, uh, elected president of France, Emmanuel Macron, because, you know, in the media we keep hearing that, well, he's a centrist and he's, he's an Atlanticist, which means that he favors increased integration with Western, between Western Europe and the U.S., and particularly he supports NATO. That's true to a point, but um, the notion, the Holzman quote I alluded to earlier, it seemed to, in 2003, maybe this was because it was 2003 and the height of the Iraq, going into Iraq was, was still there. Uh, Holzman seemed to suggest that there was uh, a very stark divide in Fran French politics between Gaullists and Atlanticists. And Gaullists favor more French independence and they favor a more continental view, and, which they do, they do. Uh, and the Atlanticists favor a, a greater orientation toward England and America and, and the kind of Anglo-Celtic uh, American realm. Um, I actually disagree. I think, it's, I think it's on a continuum, and I think that most French political leaders have elements of Gaullism within their policies, regardless of party politic. That, they, that this, there is a strain of, they, they worry about American unilateralism, there is a strain of French unilateralism, there is a strain of of French, there's an independent streak that even as they're calling for greater unity, they're going to do so as long as they think, which is totally sensible, uh, as long as they think that it's in their interests. And um, so I think that if they have to buck America a few times, they gladly will. If they have to side with America, they gladly will. I don't know if that is, uh, I don't know if Holzman was correct when he, at least in my reading of his work, seemed to suggest that in France you're either an Atlanticist or you're a Gaullist. That's simply not the case. It's a spectrum. It's a continuum. And there, there are hints of, of this French nationalist streak with members of the right as well as the left uh, in France. This concept I, I, I spoke about, about two seconds ago about I mean, unilateralism, the fear of American unilateralism, it really became pronounced in the post-Cold War period under Jacques Chirac. Uh, his his foreign minister Hubert Vadrine, I can never say he's a Vadrine Vadrine. Um, I think he he did a New York Times article in 1992. He did an interview in which he defined the term hyper hyperpuissance. And uh, forgive me if I'm butchering the, the pronunciation. Um, 
And to you and I reading that, we would think, well, that's a fairly academic view, but it actually, it was, uh, it was a pejorative. It was, it was not something, he was not looking at it fondly, and he was not just analyzing American power. To the French, particularly in the post-Cold War era, American unilateralism was the threat to their diplomacy, to their ability to project power, that American unilateralism was something to be overcome. And so the uh, Chirac government in particular really took up this Gaullist notion of furthering an independent French uh, uh, power, and they wanted to begin advocating for, uh, they began calling for the creation of a multipolar post-Cold War era in which America was a major power, but there were several others. This, as you will see, became a, a, a common call from the Putin government uh, and Russian nationalists in the post-Cold War era. It also was a call of the German left and some of the far-right elements in, in Germany of creating a multipolar world where, if not their individual country, a Franco-German-led Europe would be operating on an equal footing with the British, with the Americans, with the Russians and Chinese. Um, there's a man, uh, Primakov, the bottom picture, he was one of the architects of uh, Russia's calls for multipolarity. He was, uh, he was, ba he's basically, he was basically the Russian Soviet, the, this Russian's Henry Kissinger. He was very much a, um, a, a grand strategic thinker and he had a lot of influence. He was, in, of course, in the Soviet era, he was up and coming, but in the post-Soviet era, he was first very tight with uh, Yeltsin and then he became very close to Putin. And he was the one who recognized after the American intervention, NATO intervention in the Balkans, that first of all, as Russians, we don't like when NATO starts interfering in what we perceive to be our sphere of influence, which is the Balkans and the Eastern Europe, the former Soviet space. And the fact that the, the West didn't acknowledge our concerns over this issue, we need to use our soft power and diplomacy as an effective tool for stunting American and Western influence. And he called for the creation of diplomatic strategic triangles. Now for him, he was looking east and he was saying Russia should align closely with India and China to balance uh, America. But Putin took his concept of strategic triangles and he actually applied it to Germany and France. And he saw in this Gaullist strain of thought, uh, he saw a, a means to cleave uh, France and Germany potentially away from America and, and Britain and thereby neutering NATO and if Putin could have his way, breaking apart the European Union. And the picture in the middle is very telling. This, this uh, strategic triangle really came to shape, came to fruition and was at its pinnacle of power under the leadership of Russian President Vladimir Putin as a silent partner and then the more vocal Jacques Chirac uh, of, of France and then Chirac's good buddy and the man who would go on to become a senior executive with uh, the oil industry uh, in Germany, uh, a good friend of Putin, uh, Gerhard Schroeder of Germany. Um, these three men were instrumental in, I'm not going to make a commentary on the Iraq war, I don't want to get into that here, but we cannot deny that the, this strategic triangle, I, in my view, did more damage to the American diplomatic standing in the world than any enemy could have, than Saddam ever could have, uh, an actual enemy. These three forces aligned on the international stage and basically not only made opposition to Iraq 
specific to the Iraq War, but made it a referendum on American hegemony and uh, America's ability to project global power. And that referendum, at least for Putin, continues to go on to this day. Obviously, Chirac and, and Schroeder are no longer in power, although it should be noted in Germany, Schroeder, as I noted, is a senior oil and natural gas executive with deep ties to uh, Gazprom and Putin. And in fact, um, I, I believe Putin, I might be wrong, I, I might have read, I thought I read this recently, that Putin is actually one of Schroeder's children's godparents. I might be wrong, but they were so close. Back in the 2000s, they would routinely Christmas together. They would have their Christmas. So, uh, and, and Schroeder is very still influential, especially on the German left. Um, and Chirac is still, I mean, Chirac is on the right, but Chirac's cronies are still very influential with the French business community, as well as on the French left. In fact, um, either the Sarkozy government or the Hollande government, one of the minister of, of defense was actually a former Chirac aide. It was, a, it was a, a unity government that they had to do. It might have been, it might have been Sarkozy. Um, but but these, these elements are still at play today. Um, in my view, the Bush administration's decision, this is, now this is an unattributed quote, but it is rumored that in 2003, uh, Condoleezza Rice, as National Security Advisor to George W. Bush, that she, she advised him to punish France, ignore Germany, and forgive Russia. I actually think that we probably should have forgiven France, uh, ignored Germany still, uh, uh, ignored Germany and, and punished uh, Russia, because obviously Russia today is still <laughs> feeling its oats. Um, so as I noted earlier, the, the, French, the, the French banked on being able to have outsized influence in European politics by really steamrolling the integration of a European uh, uh, supranational alliance, and they banked that they would have, because they, they figured they were the most dominant continental military power still, they, they figured they would have outsized influence, and of course in an economic union, or at least a predominantly economic union, such as the European Union, um, if you don't have the potent economic, uh, potent economy, the country with the most potent economy, in this case Germany, your old nemesis, will. And so this gets us into the the, the Gaullist, the, the Gaullist uh, view of, of having a large centralization of, of, of power and having an outsized uh, government role in the economy. For, for years, France has dealt with a very poorly performing economy. Um, I think it's under 2% growth annually, uh, GDP. Um, and then if you look at this, without, without government expenditures, the French economic growth is even worse, uh, GDP is even worse than it is today. Um, the, France of today has really fully embraced globalization, low trade barriers, open economy, these are things that you and I have been taught are very good, but if you were to ask anybody living in any of the cities listed, Tarbes, for instance, if it's good, I think they'd give you the same answer that the Americans living in, in the Rust Belt would give you, is that no, it's actually depleted us. That A handful of cosmopolitan centers are integrated into the global economy. Um, it's, an, it's a knowledge-based economy, um, but if you're not involved with it, as much of the country is not, uh, you're going to have diminishing returns. This is why, by the way, Marine Le Pen went from having one department supporting her in 2012 to having, I think, 40% of the electorate of France 
supporting her. It's because it's the same reason. It's, it's the, the working class. Um, this was the number one concern. And, and I bring up the economy because it's important to know that French economics has left much to be desired going back to at least the 1970s. But if you flash back to the interwar era, uh, in between the two world wars, the French economy was sputtering even then. And this was one of the reasons why they were so desperate to try to build a balance of power against Germany. Uh, they were, French economics has been abysmal for at least a century. Um, they've had okay, I mean, they, they do okay. You're living in a westernized country, a modern country. But in terms of what you're taking home at the end of the day, your expenditures are very high. That's because of the outsized role of the central government. And you can just see it here. Um, higher unemployment than the average OEC. CD uh, country GDP growth is in the, is in the tank, um, and more importantly, human capital, the human capital question, uh, which has been dogging Western governments for decades since the 1970s, uh, we're having a fertility, a baby bust, as Jonathan Lass calls it, not just in France but in Europe, also in some parts of America, in Canada, in Japan. Westernized, modern countries are are not having enough babies. And this is important because human capital, this by the way, this is also a problem for Russia um, that they don't talk about very often, but a large part of Putin's foreign policy is predicated on cleaving as many ethnic Russians back into the fold so that they can start replenishing their losses in terms of demographics. As you see, like in France, like in Britain, and like in Southern Europe and parts of the West and West parts of Europe, other parts of Europe, um, a persistent decline in fertility rates coupled with an increase in immigration from parts of the world that are not culturally Western is having a very um, unforeseen impact on French politics, on European politics, Russian politics, as well as um, their national security and, and geopolitical outlook. Uh, it's just another, another graph that, that uh, GDP has been flat for France. Um, and this to getting immigration. It's just so you so you all know, it, demographers assert that, and it should be 2.1 minimum, 2.1 children per 1,000 women in each country, to maintain what's known as societal replacement level, and that is the barest minimum number of people that you need born in every generation in order to um, maintain the country's political and cultural standing. As you grew up in it, you know, as you as you as you remember it. If you start having, if you look, beginning in the late '60s, early '70s, if you start having consistently below average returns, and by the way, this uptick here is only because of the masses of immigrants that they've been taking on. Uh, if you start, if you start having a persistently low uh, fertility rate, eventually it will have deleterious impacts, and it is on your economy on your growth projections, uh, on everything. It will slow everything down. And um, the Europeans are kind of the poster children for what happens when you stop having enough babies. And France had went through this before, though. Um, I was reading Paul Johnson's book last night, and I flagged uh, Modern Times. He has a whole section on French demographics in the interwar era. And it mirrors what's going on now. They were in the 1920s and 30s, started only having one child per family. Um, they started to suffer economically for it. At the same time, they were facing threats uh, arrayed against them. Uh, back then it was Germany, today it's potentially Russia, it's you know, terrorism. Uh, there was a lot of issues, and it all goes back to demo demographics. 
Um, many commentators, Mark Stein, uh, Walter, I forgive me, I butcher his name, Lacker, Lacour, Lacour, I butcher his name. I've read his, read, read his books on the subject, and one of the notable ones is The Last Days of Europe, and he has a whole part about French immigration policy and how um, initially to after World War II, uh, many European countries, France among them, started allowing for their former colonial subjects to come back and work as guest, guest workers. The intention was they come, work for you know, a few years, uh, reinvigorate the, the ailing French economy, and then go back to their homelands, you know, rehabilitate their homelands and whatever. And of course, if you're coming in from, I don't know, somewhere else and you're living in a Western country, Why you might- Why do you go back? Right, that's right. And exactly right. And they stayed, and then they started bringing family members over. And then some of those family members came over because they wanted the money, but they didn't like the Westerners. They didn't like the Western culture. Um, and then eventually in the 80s, which is where you start to see the arrival, the kind of first wave of Islamists um, under as political refugees, seeking a political asylum. And the more they came over, we assumed it was because they were freedom fighters. But in fact, in many cases, they were actually on the run from their home governments because they were actually illiberal and they were seeking to, you know, re-implement some form of Sharia or radical, very radical politics back home. They weren't welcomed, understandably, but we welcomed them here. Uh, one of my favorite examples is we forget in the late 70s, his, his exile from Iran, the Shah of Iran, was to Paris. He was a big hit over there. Um, and he tricked the Parisians, and many of these people tricked the French authorities into making them believe that, oh no, we're Democrats. And it's not true. And so the first seeds of what we're seeing today in terms of the Islamist ideology in Europe and France were sown here in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, when the first wave of Islamists started seeking political asylum in places like France, permissive societies. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the works of, and, and I can never, again, this is another, I'm terrible with names, I apologize, Christopher Jaluli or Galois, um, he's, a, he's a pretty big deal realtor, a real estate developer in Paris, and he's also a, a, a geographer by training. And he has seen firsthand the demographic changes, in, particularly in northern Paris. And he wrote a book in France about these, these trends. And the top quote, the young men living in the northern Paris suburbs feel a burning solidarity with their Muslim brother in the Middle East. Very telling. And even though many of the jihadists that are conducting attacks in Europe are actually second generation immigrants, meaning that their parents uh, came over from wherever in the Middle East or Africa or any, you know, wherever, um, and that they were actually either born or spent most of their lives living in the French system, they are, for whatever reason, having this negative reaction to French culture, French politics, and they're finding solidarity back home in their native homelands. Um, and then, of course, couple that with what I was talking about earlier, the old French middle class had been declared surplus to requirements because the work they used to do is outsourced. These are the, the trends internally driving French politics today. And um, just to give you a little, little data here from Vox, so it's not, you know, some, it's not a Trump-loving website I, I found. I purposely looked for a very left-leaning website to, to show that the increasing share among French, uh, the French society uh, who favor, share a favorable view of ISIS. 
Uh, it's pretty scary. 16% may not sound like a lot to you and I, but I would think 1% is, is, is pretty scary. Um, I, I imported this from Pew. Uh, it's an interesting, um, interesting thing that the Muslims in, in these European countries, particularly France, are younger than Europeans, uh, the, the French in this case, and they are um, having more children than the native French population. Again, not in and of itself a bad thing, but given the prevalence of jihadist ideology that is cropping up and the fact that the French government is unable to properly integrate these folks into the larger French national you know, culture, uh, it's, it's a problem. Um, however, for those who are worried about hate crimes uh, against, which seems to be anytime there's an attack in, in France or in Britain or in Western Europe, the media starts going, well, we don't want to have backlash. And we don't. We don't want to have backlash against anybody who's innocent. But um, look at how the lowest, dis uh, you know, those who favor, uh, have a negative view of um, Muslims, uh, they're, they're not many in France or Germany or the UK. It's always, you know, in, in, in the Eastern countries. And they're the ones with the stricter immigration policies. And they're the ones who are not suffering through the jihadist wave. They don't have to worry about Russia next door, which is a big worry. Um, more on the, the economy there. You look at the, the, the Bloomberg, I thought Bloomberg had some great coverage of the French election in terms of what they were charting and what they were looking at. And I'm normally a skeptic of Western media. Um, but this, this to me, um, the divide between the educated, the people who were formerly educated who voted for Macron, and those who were in the blue-collar communities that were dying voting for Le Pen, uh, it's pretty stark. It's the countryside. It's the, you know, Angela Cotevilla refers to it as the ruling class versus the country class. Country class lost in France, but uh, there's a clear correlation. And uh, Ian Bremmer posted something I thought was funny uh, after the election. Uh, Macron 2017, Le Pen 2022. Is that the big fear? Um, I actually think it's the wrong fear. Uh, Le Pen, yes, her, her share of voters is increasing, but they're also older, and they're also people who are, with all due respect, going to probably die out before, they're, they're going to see a declining, decline in their number. The young people of France are all generally to the left, and they are living in the cities, and they, they voted for Macron, but there was a huge uptick. I think the real fear in both Germany and France should be among left-wing populists. And in this case, uh, if you look at Melchon's numbers, as Marine Le Pen and Macron were all declining at the, toward the end of the first round of voting, Melchon's numbers exploded. And he, since the youth in uh, Fran French society, and since most of the youth tend to be aggregated into the cities, and they've grown up in this knowledge-based, or as my friend Chris Busker calls it, the plantation economy, uh, knowledge-based economy. Um, I think that he actually, or people of his ilk, and by the way, Melchon is in the back pocket of the Russians, as is most of the French left. Uh, I think that he, he, people of his ilk in future elections will stand a much greater chance of winning. And the reason is simple. We have to harken back to the reason I brought up in the beginning, uh, French independence and the French mixed sovereignty crisis that's been going on is because Macron is very much a, a fan of Merkel, is a fan of Atlanticist uh, rhetoric. Uh, he's a fan of the EU, definitely a fan of NATO. 
Um, however, he is very much the junior partner to Merkel. There's no doubt. And uh, the Merkel government has been insistent, and Macron has agreed in principle to this, that the French need to get their financial house in order. The Fran France is a, is, a, is a weight around Germany's economic neck, and Germany has been carrying them. Um, the French, one of the reasons there's such a backlash to immigrants is because the French have become wholly dependent on the welfare state in France. And the welfare state and the poor economics is the result of this increased Keynesian or statist inter interference in the French private sector. And to be fair, Merkel called for private sector reforms as well, but coming from the Germans, who have also a very uh, higher than usual, at least from an American perspective, uh, government interference in their private sector, I don't know if that's like the pot calling the kettle black. Um, the French electorate, if Macron is serious about implementing these reforms, he will not make it electorally, because the moment you start going after people's livelihoods, the way that they, they, they live their lives, um, economics, they're not going to vote for you. And in fact, one of the reasons that Marine Le Pen was so successful, and Donald Trump to a lesser extent was like this as well, was because they made a bargain with the people. We won't go after the welfare state. We, will, we may talk about tweaking it here and there, but we're going to talk about defending your entitlements. That was very strong. That was a strong pull for many people, especially in those depressed uh, blue-collar communities. Um, it also won Le Pen a little bit of left-wing support. Mélenchon and his leftists, the socialists, they, they are all in favor of not only protecting the entitlement system, but in also maintaining French sovereignty and independence away from Germany, away from the EU. So they're Euroskeptical as well, which in another life wouldn't have been that good. But in the last 20 years, as these trends have worked in France's disfavor, people are starting to wake up to the fact that they don't like the EU, or at least they don't like it as it's arranged. And so French sovereignty and French, that independent streak, is going to start playing in uh, unexpected ways, to say the least. Um, and this whole lecture, everybody keeps talking about, and I kept talking about, well, if Macron loses, then the future of Europe, that's, that's, that's up for grabs. No. Whatever France does, doesn't matter for Europe. All that matters is what happens in Germany. That's all that matters. If you understand what's going on in Germany, you'll understand, will the EU be around a little bit longer? What will NATO's, NATO's role be? Will, uh, be? Um, that's, this is kind of the sine qua non for European politics, is the German pivot. Everything circles right now around the German, especially now that Brexit happened, everything circles around the German pivot. Understand that and you'll understand pretty much everything that's going on with, with European integration and all that stuff. Um, so serious change is coming. Um, that is, we're already living through it. But the question of what is France's role in this budding German-Russian alliance, and by the way, I'm hoping to do another lecture focusing on Germany, but for this lecture, because it was about Paris, I like France, I really didn't get too much into it. But France's role, and they are waking up to this fact, once they realize that they are not equals at that table with Russia and Germany, once they realize that 
sure, they have the military still. Russia still wants to do military deals with them, and they still want to do business with them. But the I, the, the, the prize is Germany for Russia. They want, they want Germany. They want them in their back pocket. They want them to be buddy-buddy. Uh, they're trying to build the, the strategic alliance. Uh, France would be an added benefit. But once the French, regardless of whether it's uh, Le Pen on the right uh, or, or uh, Mélenchon, uh, because I don't think, I think Macron's political fortunes, I think his days, I'm very skeptical of his longevity. Um, I realize that puts me on, as an outlier, but I'm happy to be that. Um, once the French wake up to the fact that they are not equals here, this budding alliance will not last long, in much the same way that previous French alliances with Russia or with Germany have not lasted. For the French, it's economics, it's this independent street, but also there is a deep-seated allergy toward German power. And Germany, obviously, militarily, although they are talking about heading an EU defense force, um, Germany militarily is nothing without the rest of the West, particularly the US, um, but economically, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, here's my contact info. Uh, I, I have my own website, weikertreport.com. Uh, I've written extensively on, I actually have a, 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 an entire um, symposium I did on Russia, Germany, and um, France. Uh, I, I've just been, as of yesterday, was made a contributing editor for the new it's a conservative publication, American Greatness, amgreatness.com. You should also check out the sister publication. It's an academic journal called American Affairs Journal. It's a quarterly journal. They, they're on their second, second uh, edition. I'm hoping to submit something for their third edition in fall. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Brandon Weigert. Follow me on Facebook, at The Weigert Report. Um, and check out our YouTube page. I, I occasionally do video blogs. I really don't enjoy it. Um, uh, and uh, I post these talks and interviews. I'm, I'm interviewed a lot. Um, so if there's a, uh, this is Q&A, so I, I, I know I went a little long. So please be f feel free to ask. Yes, sir. <clears throat> My question goes to a, a point of detail early on in your lecture. You mentioned that France's alliance with Russia lasted until 1912. Why 1912? Beginning of the Balkan War? or? or? Uh, well, if I remember correctly, I think the treaty lapsed. I, I actually don't remember that. I was, when I was reading, because I, I was trying to confirm the dates, because I was getting conflicting dates, that's the, the last piece I read. Because some of them said that it started in the 1880s. Um, the, the official treaty, though, I know it began in 1890, and I, I, I believe 1912. I, I don't actually remember why it ended in 1912. But the Bolshevik Revolution pretty much ended Russia's usefulness anyway. So. It was until it was it was until World War One basically um, that whole order ended. Um, but in regards to French Russia connections, um, particularly with Chirac and even with Sarkozy, um, the Russian influence is still there. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, they re-engaged in a Franco-Russian alliance. The demographic and economic realities of Russia, I think, lend itself to the notion that the same thing that happened before with the Franco, 
Russian alliance will play out again, whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now, in that the centrifugal forces within Russia make, make, make a partnership with Russia temporary at best and fleeting. Is that whether it's demographics with the Muslim community in Russia, whether it's demographically in terms of uh, there's potential that there's mass protests going on right now in Russia's east, could bleed into the west. That's why they've uh, created this new Russian National Guard under Zolotov's command, um, who's a Putin apparatchik. There is real fear in Russia that the, the winds of change are blowing again. And this time, if the winds of change blow too hard, unlike after the Bolshevik Revolution and unlike after the Cold War, I disbelieve that Russia will remain an intact state, that you'll have the oblasts separating, um, which is problematic for our foreign policy, to say the least, given all the nukes. Um, but so any alliance with, with Russia from France's perspective is frankly idiotic. It's temporary at best. So, yes, sir. Um, throughout the course of the uh, 2016 election, mm -hmm. um, then candidate Trump, he received uh, a lot of questions about uh, just what his plans were if he were to be elected. Sure. And um, there were a lot of questions of, uh, after he got elected uh, regarding, you know, okay, well, where's this health care plan he said to have? Right. And come to find out, you know, there was none. And where's your strategy with Syria? Come to find out, you know, he had none. But what we are learning is that the, uh, the basic underlying principle uh, that President Trump moved uh, forward in his presidency with is to go line by line, just Google, and say everything that President Obama did from 2008 up until when he left office and do the exact opposite. Just go down the line, hey, I'm gonna do the opposite of this. I'm gonna do the opposite of what we did in Cuba. Do the opposite of what, did, what he did with the Paris Climate Agreement. Although I don't know the history of any of these nations sure. or the actual acts itself, you know, um, we're going to do the opposite, and it's just going to make it seem like all my voters, you know, that I'm doing what I said I'm doing. I actually disagree with you on that. I, I actually think that, I mean, I don't want to talk domestic politics here. It's not what this is about. But I will say, just put this in your ear, 62% um, of the National Security Council staff are Obama holdovers. Um, most of the people in the mid-levels of our government are still Obama holdovers, and the ones that are Republican belong to the group known as the Never Trump Republicans. So, and if you look at what he's done, um, I don't, I don't want to even talk about health care because that's, that's not yeah, what this I'll, is, I'll this is for. No, I understand. No, like no, I, no, I know. Um, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, I don't know if it's just doing the opposite of what Obama did. I think it was looking at the economics and saying that this is at a tough economic time for America, regardless of the whatever's going on with, with the environmental science community, the economics of the, of the, the situation are that having us in economically is not going to help us. It's not going to help the Europeans. It's not. Um, in fact, the French business community and the German, I said this in my first talk, I think you were at that as well. Uh, the French and German business communities are screaming bloody murder because the U.S.-backed sanctions on Russia are preventing their industries from doing the kind of trade they want with Russia. So I, I actually think that um, it's not just a question of doing the opposite of, of his predecessor. I think President Trump, his people did look at the economics, which tends to be, given his business background, a serious uh, component of the Trump agenda, such as it is. Now, we, we can talk offline about how effective it's been, and I, I think that part of the problem 
in turn, I don't think it's actually been the I don't think he's actually done the I think doing the opposite would have made more sense. I think keeping a lot of these Obama holdovers and a lot of the never Trump Republicans in place has actually nullified the administration's ability to affect the kind of change that it promised the Trump voters. The fact that the Trump voters are still 92% behind Trump, I think that's more to do with the fact that they're giving him a chance. It's only been five months. Okay, we'll see. Um, I actually, I just don't, I don't think he's doing the exact, I think it would be easier if he just did the exact opposite of his predecessor, to be honest with you, politically. But um, in terms of the, the climate change agreement, it's about economics. It really is. And in fact, actually, I'd like to amend something I did just say. Um, the French, the Europeans, the reason they are so wedded to it is because select industries in, uh, in the, um, the new fabled uh, green uh, green economy. A lot of them are based in Europe, based in France. They benefit a lot. The re they, they, you know, so I don't know how much of it is a commitment to saving the earth or buying into the science and how much of it is just, first of all, we benefit economically partly from it. I think they would benefit more if they just, you know, were with us on this um, in the long run. And then also it's a question of, um, that old French independent streak and trying to stick it to America because, well, we don't like American hegemony. And to the, remember, to the French, um, going back to the Revol American Revolution, they viewed us and always have as rustics. So, um, you know, we're, we're, it, it's a cultural thing as well, more so, I think, than scientific. But there's no doubt that, that there are French leaders who believe the science, and that's fine. Um, but it is economics for us, and also to a point for the French. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Sure, yeah. <coughs> Do you see the uh, Berlin-Moscow axis on the uh, German side, on the Berlin side, as primarily uh, socialists, like Gerhard Schroeder and his link with Gazprom? Or are there German uh, Christian Democrats who also are part of this axis? Oh, well, um, I, I, I wanted to bring a book with me. There's an incredible book out. Um, it's called Putin's Propaganda Machine. And it's by uh, Marcel, I forget his last name now. He's, he's in France. Um, I believe he's actually with um, Brookings. I think he's actually with Brookings. Um, but he's over there right now. And he wrote this incredible book, Putin's Propaganda Machine. He has a whole chapter on, on just that question in which he tracked, he tracked the... Um, economic ties between the Putin regime and the leaders of both the left and right in France and Germany. And um, you find that Putin has, it's economics, Putin has bought out support from both sides of the aisle in both France and Germany. Um, the Obviously, we heard a lot about Marine Le Pen, or now we hear the, which is collapsing, the Alternative for Deutschland party, the alternate right-wing party in Germany. You heard a lot about their flirtations with Russia. And it's true, there, there are a lot of connections there. Um, that's also for the AFD cultural, though, because they're mostly based in what was once East Germany. So it makes sense that they would have a bit of sympathy for the Russians. Um, it's economics, though, because obviously the oil and natural gas is so prevalent for both countries from Russia that that is a strategic lever that Putin has no problem playing. Also, both countries do not want to see a revitalization. Well, uh, people like Schroeder and his cabal in Germany and people like um, the, the, the Chiracs on the right and then also, to an extent, 
some of the left, like Mélenchon in France, they don't want to see a total revival of pro-American sentiment and a total revival of the American military presence in Western Europe. They don't want to see it, they don't like it, and they certainly don't want us, in their view, to agitate for another war, a Cold War with Russia, in which Germany and France are, in their view, on the front lines, even though really it's Eastern Europe that's unfortunately being targeted. Um, but it's all, you know. So um, your question, though, about uh, it is it, it is a bit it is cultural it is it is also the fear of, of, of war being visited upon the homelands of Germany and, and France and it is economic it, it is it is a lot about the oil and gas you look at and in terms of the Christian Democratic um, in Germany uh, yeah there are definitely elements that that are friendly toward there's this, there's this myth, and it's been perpetrated by the American, in particular, the American media, that the European, the Western Europeans in particular, are, you know, the Merkels and the, 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 the sorry, uh, with Hollands were staunchly anti-Russian. Not true. Not true. Merkel, yes, her background as living in Eastern Germany and experiencing that, yes, look, she's not a fan of Russia, but she has no problem doing business. And... With, with, the, with the Russians, and I am skeptical, given her what's going on with the contentious upcoming elections in Germany, I am skeptical that she's going to maintain those sanctions, particularly in the face of um, uh, renewed pressure from Putin. I just, I don't, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical. And furthermore, I, I'm, I'm actually more worried about Germany's partner, potential partnership with Russia than I am France. France is the independent streak, so. Germany, on the other hand, if you're an economic power, you want to take the path of least resistance. You're closer to Russia. That's a big market, relatively untapped. You get most of your natural gas. And they're trying. And you know, Merkel, and Merkel's a mixed bag. She's trying to diversify. She's trying to still stay oriented toward the Atlanticists. But I just don't know if, I, you know, geography is maybe destiny in this case. I don't know. We, we'll see. But there's definitely, there are definitely pro-Russian elements even within the CDU in Germany. Yes, sir. You mentioned the rise of the uh, jihadists in Europe. Sure. And, uh, you know, in the 70s there were no jihadists. Yeah. And all of a sudden we have jihadists. Yeah. Now, the question is, I, you didn't mention anything about the U.S. foreign policy effect on the rise of the jihadists. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. So, so we yeah. bear the right. and so the just, rise of the jihadists. Just to clarify, are you speaking just generally in our foreign policy toward the Middle East, or are you speaking... You know, starting with Afghanistan. Sure. During the Soviets. Yeah. Right? I remember, sure. I remember President Reagan brought this Mujahideen to the White House. He paraded them in front of people saying these are the freedom fighters. Sure. And at the end of fighting... Well, you got to remember, you actually have to... The thing about Afghanistan you have to remember is that the, the Mujahideen, it became co-opted by the foreign fighters from Saudi Arabia predominantly. But initially, they were actually Afghans. They were, they were militant Islamists, no doubt. But they were actually Afghans fighting for freedom. And so I actually believe the group in that picture were actually not... Who would go on to become Al Qaeda? Um, but there's no. You're, you're right. Yeah, our foreign policy has been short-sighted. Uh, I just gave an interview with this, with Chris Buskirk uh, on the Seth and Chris show, which is a it's a talk show out of uh, Arizona. It's a West Coast based, and um, he was actually talking to me about this. And I I was saying that what we really need to try. And my last talk at IWP was about this as well. We've got to try to. It looks like we might be try to get back to some semblance of a balance of power arrangement in the Middle East to create stability, which, by the way, will create stability in terms of the refugee flows. Because many of these people are coming into Europe because their homes are getting blown up. Um, so, I mean, I can't, 
Part, I, 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 you know, the, the jihadist threat, it's, it's, a, it's a scourge. It has to be crushed. But part of me, I do feel for these, a lot of these people coming over because a lot of cases, uh, the BBC had me on about this back in February, and I got into it with, with one of the guests. A lot, of, a lot of the problem is when these refugees, they flee their, home, their homes in Syria, for instance. They go to a UN refugee camp. The UN has a lottery system, basically, the High Commission on, on Human Rights, and they say, okay, well, you, do you want to stay in the refugee camp? Who wants to stay in a refugee camp? He said, or, or do you want to you know, put your name in a lotto to go to one of these countries that's accepting X amount of refugees? A lot of times they end up in France, in Germany, or Canada, because those are the countries that are taking in the most. But when you're, a, when you're raised in a very militant and a very strict Muslim community, and you come to Paris, and you see these Parisian women, now they're beautiful, but you know, they're, they don't look, they don't dress, they don't act the way that you're supposed to act in those cultures, and then you start to miss home, and then you furthermore in France, they're not very good at integrating these people to work, have sustainable work, because there's the fear that they're gonna take my job, or there's the fear that they're gonna go on the welfare system, they're gonna start you know, making my benefits even less than they already are, and so then you have this integration problem. So you, you have this, this terrible toxic brew in France and, and throughout Europe and Canada now even as well. Um, so, yeah, U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East has been a little short-sighted. Um, it's not. It's not I mean, all. We're still, we're still, it's not all our fault, though. We're still. We're still allied with Saudi Arabia, which we have to be, though. It's no, unfortunate. We don't have to be. We oh. can force them to change the the combat. Yeah. Because in the schools in Saudi Arabia, no, I know. The Wahhabism. No, I know. And they, in Pakistan they, they as well. Are, I know. They are nurturing the Wahhabism. Yeah. Well, that 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 is. We don't say anything about. That was a deal. That was a deal with the devil that the House of Saud made because in the seventies it was the the Mecca siege. They were woken to the fact that oh my gosh, um, there's a large portion of our population who hates us because we're aligned with the West. But we actually like going to school in America, and we actually like West, the oh, West. Bless. And bless. yeah, and so they had to do a deal, basically. The, the, the King Abdullah did a deal, basically, where we will look the other way on your activities as long as you don't bring it to Saudi Arabia. So you can export, yeah. and you can do. And it was a deal with the devil, and shame on them. But I, I understand why they did it, and we're we're caught in this position, and the West as as well, all of the West, where. We now run the risk if we push Saudi Arabia way too far, they will either, the House of Saudi Arabia, and same thing in Pakistan, the government there will either collapse and be replaced by jihadists, outright Wahhabists, or we just, we try to contain the behavior. And I think, I actually think, so far, the greatest achievement of the new administration, if they can actually keep, keep on the Saudis, I don't know if they can was to open the door to letting Saudi Arabia kind of run the, the gamut on the Sunni side of the Middle East. That's going to be the new balance of power. Sunni kingdoms with Israel um, against Iran, Shiite Iran. That's how we're going to keep the balance there. Before we could do it without having to rely on the religious factor, unfortunately after Iraq 2003, that option is no longer there. So yeah, I know our foreign policy in the Middle East is a disaster, but the Middle East itself is a disaster. So, you know, I... <laughs> I don't know how we. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yes. Sunnis are also not in favor of Wahhabis. Yes, I'm sorry. Sunnis, Sunni Muslims are not in favor of Wahhabis. No, I I know that. But the Wahhabis are considered Sunni, but Sunnis do not like Wahhabis. No, I I know, and actually, no, and 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 actually, this is this is a good point you bring up. Um, I'm actually working on a on a paper on this. 
Um, and I'll just talk about it here, whatever. Um, if you look at the Wahhabi uprising that happened in the 17th century, it was the Muslims who put, him down, put them down. It was, initially there, they, the Wahhabis had what they were saying, they had a degree of sympathy from people. But as soon as they started going into villages and killing all of the Muslims that they viewed as unbelievers, the Muslims in the Arabian Peninsula and throughout the Ottoman Empire were going, oh, we got to get rid of these guys. And so the, the Sultanate in, in, uh, in, in, in what we now know as Turkey today, yes, they coordinated with the Egyptians and they crushed the Wahhabis. And there was not an utterance of Wahhabism until the Cold War era. Um, and so there's, you're absolutely correct. There is, um, there, there is, there is a distinction there, um, and and I think that. So my article that I'm writing is actually predicated on. I think this deal with Saudi Arabia is hopefully the first step to generating the kind of reaction on the part of the majority Sunnis that they actually crush this Wahhabist strain. And they were then backed by Brits, by the way. Yes, yes. All well, yeah. Against me, I guess Adamus. Right. They were migrants. Yeah. Right. It's true, and and I, I don't want to make this obviously about the Middle East, but they are connected, and everybody forgets how connected they are to the to the issue in Europe. But um, we are all the unfortunate um, uh, recipients of the toxic inheritance of British, French, and colonial foreign policy in that part of the world, and so. Since America is not a colonial power, we have done the best we can to square an impossible, an impossible circle. So I, I think we are starting to wake up to the fact that things are not tenable the way they are. And um, for the French, you know, the French keep wanting to interfere in, you know, they were the ones who were gung-ho for Libya. They were the ones who were gung-ho for Syria in 2013. They actually had French fighters orbiting Damascus ready to strike when Obama said, oh, I'm out, I'm out. Because I think Obama looked at and realized that it was going to be American GIs having to secure Damascus because the French and the British would not have done it. Maybe the British, maybe. But definitely not the French. But we went along with, with Libya, right? Foolishly. Yeah. Foolishly. No, and then actually, to the point about Trump, this is actually, I think, why Trump on foreign policy has so much support from the American people, not necessarily the D.C. establishment, because he's saying, look, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, we're doing these ridiculous wars of liberation, sounds like a Marxist term, um, and uh, what are we getting out of it? We're spending all this money, our young guys and gals are going over there getting killed, beheaded, and they hate us even more, and we're not liberating them, it's, it's leading to the Islamist winter. Which, you know, but we're now participating with Trump participating in the war in Yemen. You know, well, is participating in the war. In well, Syria. we're back in the Saudis. Yeah. Well, we have to remember that we right. We're participating in the war against the Syrian government. Who, when he was a uh, candidate, Trump, he says, "Why we should we should be right. allied with Syrian government?" I, I, yeah. So I've done I've done it. Yeah. So let, let me just let me just tell you in terms of in terms of he inherited a mess from his predecessor. And in terms of the Syrian missile strikes against the, um, against the air base, that was in response to chemical weapons use, which is in no one's favor to encourage that kind of behavior. And if Assad had continued, and I know there's dispute, I know that there's dispute about who was responsible, but looking at the data, Can I, I interrupt you? Yeah. Candidate Trump, or before he became candidate, when Syria used the first time the chemicals, I know. he said that, oh, I know. We should not uh, use that against the Syrian government. He was actually defending the Syrian government. Right, and you know, JFK was 
very much opposed to landing on the moon when he was a senator, but he became rapidly. Yeah, but, okay, no, but it's the same thing, same logic. The view changes. The view, no, the view really does change. Well, my, my opinion is that he's not in charge of the Pentagon. The Pentagon is doing what they want to do, and he's just signing off on that. I hope that's the case in terms of Afghanistan. Yeah, well, in terms of Afghanistan. <laughs> he's totally doing, um, doing things that he was not No, I think, I think but to your point about the Syrian strikes, I don't think that that deviates from what his, what his stated foreign policy was. I think that those are exceptions to the rule. If you look at the airstrike, it was because he used chemical weapons. And we do not want to start a proliferation chain of chemical weapons, especially in that war. Um, and then the second point, when he used force recently, was last week against the Syrian jet. It is not widely reported, but the reason that we had to act the way we did, we used the deconfliction line, we tried to warn the Russians, we tried to warn the Syrian government itself, they ignored us. We had special forces operators embedded with the Kurds who were fighting to retake ISIS positions. Those are our guys on the ground. So we had we went out of our way. In fact, when Trump became president, we reoriented the the posture of our air force operating in Syria to make wide give a wide berth to Russian and Syrian forces. And so I don't think that the airstrikes against against Assad and the uh, or the cruise missile strikes against Assad or the or the strike against the Syrian jets. I don't think that that's endemic of Trump losing control. I think that was the Trump administration saying, "Hey, look, we don't have a choice right now." Um, now that's a larger issue of should we even have guys there, but that's not what this was about. So, uh, you had a question, sir? Yes. Yeah. All right, so back to the Paris climate. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let, let me try to stitch this together so I'm a little, a, a little more clear. Sure. I'm curious to know what do you think um, over the next 10 to 15 years, in terms of political capital, is concerned, mm -hmm. um, when you have a situation where um, economically it does make sense. You know, I, I know that you understand. Uh, the economics of pulling out of the Paris Agreement because it really doesn't benefit the United States as a, as a for-profit venture per se. But uh, as far as just the average American seeing that type of headline on the news, you know, and you look at the list of all the countries that were involved in that, and uh, when President Trump's predecessor made the speech, you know, announcing that agreement was made, mm -hmm. you know, he listed all of these countries and it seemed right. like you know, wow, the whole world's coming together on this big climate change deal. And it made the perception yeah, that, perception. you know, um, if everyone's doing this research on, you know, new solar panels, different right. technologies, that those types of things would right. be shared amongst all of the world's countries. But at this point, yeah. now it's kind of seeming like, okay, we're out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh -huh. It's more of a, you know, U.S. isolationism more, like we're taking our, it's just us now. And you know, you know, just the, the message that it sends to the rest of the world about what's already We were happening. the only ones, the only ones who were on the hook. It was a bad deal. We were the only ones who were on the hook financially for contributing to the Paris uh, Accords in terms of uh, paying for what those regulations called for. France, Germany, China, India, zero dollars. That was after the agreement. That's why they all signed on, because they thought we were idiots. And frankly, I did too for a period. Um, if you want to talk about climate change, um, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to get into that. But I'll just say that um, the ordinary Americans, people where I'm from, down, down south, they are looking at declining profits just for getting by. And this deal increased the... the made it much more difficult for them to just live. 
Okay, and so, and this affects everybody. And so, if you want to do a deal, that's fine, but it needs to be equitable. I'm all for building, you know, Reagan said, I'm all for building bridges, but the other side has to meet me in the, mid the midpoint. China's not going to do that. Anytime we try to get China to do anything with the environment, they freak out. The only times they do it is because they're nationalists. The only time they do it in terms of national interest is if it's in their national interest. So if they can hamstring us and empower themselves, they'll do it. They'll do it. They don't, they don't have any commitment to this sense of an international liberal world order. They don't care. The Russians don't either. And to be fair, I am increasingly skeptical that the, the, China, sorry, that the French or Germans are either. It's all about national interest. We've all deluded ourselves into thinking that, well, there's this shared community. Now, Fareed Zakaria, I listened to him a few weeks ago, and he was, he was all apoplectic because uh, the administration defined the international order as being competitive. And he was going, what about cooperation? And I've got to tell you, for an international relations scholar, I was pretty, pretty surprised that he was saying this, given the history. Um, all geopolitics is competitive. We have areas of cooperation, but as Lord Palmerston said, the nation has no permanent friends or no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. And that has never changed. That never changed. Why did the European countries support us in the Cold War? Well, because they had to, and also because they couldn't find an alternate way. De Gaulle, France looked, was really actively looking for a third way, and he could never really do it. It wasn't until the Soviet Union collapsed that, he, that his successors could even entertain these notions of France seeking a multipolar world order. Uh, I, I don't mean to be flipped, but Robert Kagan, the you know, neocon, um, but he wrote, a, I thought it was hilarious, in 03, a book called of, of Politics and Power. I think that was what it was called. But basically the thesis was that Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus. And of course it's an old play on women are, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. He was basically calling the Europeans, he was saying they were emasculated. And that the reason that they were so opposed to American foreign policy was less because they really disagreed with it. And by the way, um, when it comes to fighting terrorism specifically, there is no European political elite behind closed doors who's going to sit there and go, America shouldn't be doing this. It's only in public that they say this. Um, but Kagan's argument was that the reason they're really opposed to American hegemony is because they used to have that kind of power in the colonial period, and they're envious. And now I think that's a bit pop psychology, but it is funny to talk about. And I do think that, that the Rumsfeldian concept of old Europe versus new Europe, old Europe being the Western powers in, in Western Europe, and new Europe being the Eastern powers, I, I, I do think Rumsfeld was quite right about that. Um, so it's in their interest to support the Paris climate change. It's nothing to do with the science. It's nothing with very little. It's nothing to do with, with the sense of cooperation. It's, they look at it as America's doing something stupid, and when, you're, when your uh, competitor starts doing stupid things, you get out of their way and let them. And so you want to do a climate deal, fine. I don't want to see people in my neighborhood back home not being able to live even modestly because taxes are going through the roof. You know, the ultimate goal here, I know, um, is the creation of a WTO-like organization called the World Environmental Organization, run at the international level. This was floated in 2008, 2007. It's never really gone away. There is this dream among the global elite that they will be able to create a, a what WTO does for trade, they will be able to do for um, the environment. And it's a way of coordinating global response at the international level to uh, carbon pollution. Well, what you find is the people who are supporting this organization are all from the countries that are either 
you know, ahead of the curve by investing and not seeing a return, by the way, ahead of the curve and investing on these green energy projects, or countries in the developing world, oddly enough, uh, are saying that, yeah, we'll do it because it's going to increase regulations and, and, and uh, it's going to hurt America's economic power. Not because they're, it's, it's all about national interest. And so if it was really about cooperation, fine, prove it. I want them to sit down and come up with something where everybody gives up something that they really need. For China, tell them to stop polluting. They, they literally will laugh in your face. So I don't believe in hurting America. And by the way, the, the, there's so much debate on the science to say that it's a consensus clearly. You know, I, I don't think we should be crafting national policies that have long-running effects on our geopolitical position based on an, an issue that is still being debated. Because if you listen to Al Gore, we'd all be living underwater right now, a, a decade ago. So, um, you, had a, you had a question, sir. Yes, I was uh, shifting back to uh, the uh, yeah. Moscow-Berlin powers axis. What impact does that uh, axis of those three uh, powers have on the uh, ongoing uh, war in Ukraine, especially the Normandy front negotiations? Excellent. Yeah. Does, it, does it turn those Normandy front negotiations into a lurid kind of a charade? Yeah. Yeah. So remember, remember, what, what was the French and German reaction to Georgia? Now, I know Georgia is not Ukraine. I know that. But what, what was the reaction? They beat their chest. How dare you? Putin picks up the phone. By the way, George W. Bush was deploying, redeploying from Iraq Georgian peacekeepers on U.S. C-130s. We flew them right over the Russian lines in Georgia. Bush was daring the Russians to attack our, our, our Air Force because he was looking for a pretext to strike back because Georgia was our buddy. Um, and the French and the Germans, oh, they beat their chest. And then Putin picks up the phone and says, you know, it's getting cold in Europe this time of year. And you rely on our natural gas and oil. And if you don't get the Americans to stand down, we're going to start making your life hell. Now, whether they would have fulfilled that, who knows? But it was a threat. And what happened? Overnight. Germany floats the idea that, well, we need to rethink NATO expansion. Sarkozy, the newly elected, who campaigned, by the way, on a virulently anti-Russian program, very pro, he wanted to undo all of Chirac. Uh, that book I told you about, Putin, uh, Putin's Propaganda Machine, they have a whole section on Sarkozy. Literally overnight, his position changed. Within six months, him and Putin were bosom buddies. Medvedev and Putin and Sarkozy were the new buddies. And Sarkozy was the guy, the white knight that was supposed to ride in and save Georgia, and he ended up basically turning, helping to turn Georgia into a rump state. It was now south of Ossetia and Abkhazia, and there is no way that situation would be resolved. That is a snapshot for Ukraine's future if we're not careful. So Merkel's, I can't rely on Merkel to, I mean, again, I don't want, I actually, I don't want to be unfair to Merkel because she has done some good things, but we're not even talking about her immigration policy, though. But um, she has done some good things regarding resisting Russia. And I think that's because of her personal antipathy toward Russia from her childhood. But you've got her political donors, the business community, all of them say, we don't want these sanctions. You've got um, a huge following of Russia in Germany. There is a pro-Russia sentiment in Germany that dominates the people, the voters there. You've got, it's over 60%. You have a favorable view of Russia. You've got all of her political opponents on both left and right, and even with someone within her own party, who are saying, we've got it, we've got to change our policy toward, toward Russia. So I don't know how reliable Germany will be in holding the line against Ukraine, uh, Russian irredentism. France is another story. 
France, another story. France, um, right now, uh, they have this Atlanticist orientation. Um, and the more that the, the French realize that Germany is going to be the dominant partner in any potential Russian-German-French alliance, the French will swing back toward the West. They will, especially the moment Germany starts really putting the squeeze on Macron to start reining in his entitlement programs, to start cutting off things, to start trying to save money. That's important to remember. Um, France is going to always flirt. They're always going to flirt with the other lady, but they're always going to come back to us. That's just the way it goes. Um, particularly with the increasing instability of their jihadist problem. Um, you know, Putin, as a side note, I have, I, I know I have people in Russia who read my website. I'd like to, to, to point out that <coughs> Mr. Putin talks a big game about being the last bastion of Christianity. This is a lie. This is a lie. Um, his problems with his Muslim community are as great as they are in Germany and France and Western Europe and Canada. He just hides it. Um, his language that he speaks in is still the Marxist dialectic. Um, he, I can't stress this enough, he is not the last Roman emperor or whatever, or the Byzantine, he's not what he says he is. He's using this because he knows it's an easy way into influencing uh, particularly French and German politics because there is a huge following for Putinism on the, the far right in Germany and the far left in Germany and also on the far right in France and the far left in France because of the fact that these are the most affected countries by the rise in jihadist violence. And so they're looking, I mean, for instance, um, France, yes, is a Catholic country, but for decades their atheism was renowned. But now it's resurgent. The Catholic Church are being filled again. Ever since the 2014 or 2015 attacks, uh, the Charlie Hebdo attacks. There's a huge sympathy and following for Putin because of this image that he perpetuates of himself as the last great Christian king. Wrong. In fact, during the election here in America, we kept hearing the term radical Islamic terrorism, radical jihadist terrorism, whatever. Putin was jumping on board in French, German, and English translations. He was jumping on board. Yes, yes, uh, we have to worry about these people in, in, in the Middle East, and we have to worry about these people in North Africa. But then, Paul Goebel, who's a professor here, his, his website, uh, Window on Eurasia, he, he does Russian translations, as do I. Um, we, and I don't, I've actually never met him in person, but I know he's, he's here, around here. Um, but we both have translated speeches that Putin has made in Russian, in which, as early as this January, he was mocking Trump and mocking the American foreign policy establishment for even daring to, he said, those who conflate Islam with terrorism is wrong. Now, why did he say that? Because he knows he can look out the Kremlin window. They've got a big problem on their hand. And um, why do you think he's getting so buddy-buddy with the Iranians? He's trying to figure out a way to engage the Muslim world. He can't go to the Sunnis because there are this because there are friends. The Saudis are our, Saudis rather are friends. So he's looking for. I mean, look at look at Egypt. You know, there are posters of Egypt ever since the, uh, the that ridiculous revolution that should have never happened. But ever since Sisi took power, understandably, Sisi's looking at the Americans going, I don't know if I can trust you. In all of 2015, lighting the streets of Cairo, there were giant posters of Putin. Oh, they loved him. 
because he, in the, in the international press, he's anti-jihad. Anti no, he's not. No, he's not. He's turning the other, he's, look, uh, Card, uh, how do you say his Kardyov, the guy in charge of Chechnya. He is a jihadist. He's putting gays into concentration camps. They are implementing Sharia law in Chechnya, and he is Putin's pick. He is buddies with Putin. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So this is not, this is, this is a, a great... He's fighting the jihadists. No, he's not. The Chechens. <clears throat> Uh, he yeah, 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 he yeah. blew up an apartment. He you know he was not fighting. He was doing what he did. He was doing in Chechnya what he did in Chechnya because he was trying to stop them from separating. Putin's goal is the prevention of the dissolution of the Russian state. Putin could care less. He's look. He came up in the Marxist system. He's Putin is not a religious man. I don't yeah, care. I don't care what anybody says. I, I know he's he's buddies with the, the the head of the Orthodox Church and he's got wonderful photo ops. He's a player. He knows what to do. He knows how to play people, and he realizes that he, there's. And for him, in order, it's not a lot like what Erdogan does in, in Turkey. For him to justify his reign, he has to hearken. He can't use communism, obviously, because even even Putin said communism was a stupid thing um, in terms of the political side. Um, he has to justify his regime's power and the excesses of his regime by calling on cultural symbols to Russians' past. So the Orthodox Church is a very recognizable thing. It's easy for him to latch on to. Uh, the re reopening of the Cossack military schools for the young kids. These are things that are meant to, uh, it's political. It's not cultural. It's not, it's political, more than anything. And so his, his deal in Chechnya, well, first of all, that was a way to signal to the cabal, and they are cabal. Karen Dowish's book, Putin's Kleptocracy, details this very specifically. The group that that tried to um, do the coup against Gorbachev in 92, that group of hardline KGB guys, after they got their, their clocks cleaned, they didn't go away. They looked at a new way to gain power and influence Russian policy, and that was by the economic side, uh, uh, aggregating as much economic power for themselves as possible in Russia. And then they began implementing that uh, very hardline Russian view in politics. Putin, with his connections to the KGB, was their guy. Now, Putin is not the leader of this cabal. Putin is not the, he's, he's, he's a player in it. But look at guys like Primakov, who I talked about before. Look at guy who's dead now. Uh, but look at guys like um, Yazov, General Yazov. These are guys, these are the old, the old KGB, the, the, the red war dogs. They're the ones who are pulling the strings. And it's all politics to them. They're, I'm sorry, Putin is, I, I, dis, I, know, I know guys like Mark Stein always talk about how Putin's the last Christian warrior. Putin is not. He's using that sim symbolism to implement his power. Now, we can use, I still think there's coordination of interest between us and Russia. I think that's a possibility. I, I don't understand all of this Russophobic talk. Because when you start denying Russia the ability to interact with us on the diplomatic and economic level, there's only one avenue left for them. Because the Russians don't believe in slinking away. This is the, the, the nuclear. That's, that's where you're going to start seeing and, and the military, and the kinetic realm. And you're seeing that already. So there is a way we can, that's not what I'm going to talk about. But um, don't, don't, don't conflate Putin being politically savvy and wanting to retain power with him actually being this last cultural, you know, Western cultural icon. Now, Brent, can I yeah. ask questions about that? Because a lot of my Russian friends are uh, 
he's made an alliance of convenience with the Orthodox Church. Yes. So that he can Just take on the, yeah. the guise of onward Christian soldier uh, and also restore the Orthodox Church to its pre pre Soviet primacy. Mm -hmm. But your argument is that he's not really a committed believer, shall we say? In re regains, uh, he's a committed believer in rehabilitating the Kremlin's influence yeah. over the Soviet space. Oh, certainly the old Soviet. Um, if anything, he has begun to flirt with um, this ideology known as Neo-Eurasianism, mm -hmm. which calls for the creation of a Russian, thank you, Russian-dominated Eurasian economic union that spans Vladivostok to Lisbon. Um, and um, Alexander Dugin, my old friend Alexander Dugin, is um, he, he's kind of the intellectual godfather of this movement. And basically, it's supranational, like the EU, except Moscow runs it. And it's, it's a Russian nationalist narrative in the sense that Dugin, and, he is, and Putin believes this as well, um, Russia's not just a country. It's a civilization state. Sits atop the world, spans 11 time zones, and it should dominate Eurasia. And it's based on uh, the old Mackinder uh, theories of the heartland and the, you know, the, the, the global uh, world island, which Eurasia has the largest aggregation of natural resources and people. And as uh, Mackinder used to say, whoever dominates uh, Eurasia rules the world. And this is very much Putin's interest. Is he a true believer? Um, he's a believer in... I think he believes he's the man tapped for great destiny. And so he must be in power. He left it to Medvedev, and Medvedev made a mess of things. So he had to come back. And so I, 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 I think that he's a true believer in the sense of Russia being the, the strong man of Eurasia. Well, I guarantee you. I, 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 maybe I mis misunderstood the beginning of your question, but uh, in terms of a true believer in ideology... No, just in terms of his alliance of convenience yeah. with the Orthodox Church. It's I totally know. a convenience. Yeah, yeah. You know what he did, actually, getting back to, to France, what he did, <laughs> there's, um, there was an old cultural, I think it was an old museum, a famous one, it was hideous, in, in Paris. It's up the road from the Champs-Élysées. Um, he built... He built, he bought this building, and he built the largest Orthodox Christian church in Western Europe. The kicker is, and French intelligence has confirmed this, it's also the largest FSB station. All of the priests coming out of this building are FSB agents, and they are being, they are being sent into Britain, into Canada, into America. Um, his, he has annexed the leadership of the Orthodox Church. And it's an ally, alliance of convenience. I think that Kirill or Kirill is the head of the Orthodox Church. That's his buddy. Yeah. Um, but it's very much the Orthodox Church is very submissive to the Kremlin. Yeah, there's no question. There's, it's an ally of convenience. And if the, if the Orthodox Church ever got out of line, if Kirill ever misspoke, I think you'd be seeing a new head of the Orthodox Church. In fact, there's a, they're having an argument right now. I wrote an article on my website about this in February. The um, one of the most sacred uh, cathedrals in all of Orthodox Christian Christendom is on Spruce Island off of Alaska's coast, and the head of the Orthodox Church determined last year that th they still have a legal claim to that that part of Alaska mm. that when they never ceded sovereignty when we purchased it, and he's pushing Putin 
to basically lay claim to that part of Alaska. And Putin has been standoffish about it, but given the way that Putin is really desperately trying to pivot Russian foreign policy toward the Far East, and the fact that he likes tweaking America, and the fact that all of these intercepts have been going on against American planes in Alaska, and the fact that he's increased his, his holdings in the Arctic, maybe there's something, maybe, maybe we should be paying a little more attention to that. I, couldn't, I could see something like that happening. Well, there's a number of Russian Orthodox churches along the Alaska. Yeah, but this one actually has sovereignty. It's yeah. actually independent of America's, and they still hold it. And of course, the Kremlin holds control over the Orthodox Church. So, uh, You had a question, though? Yes. In the uh, debate here in the United States, uh, between engagers and skeptics, those who favor engagement with Russia, those right. who think Russia will be useful in promoting American um, interests and values, versus skeptics who are against that and doesn't, who don't trust Russia. Uh, the engagers argue that the ideas of Alexander Dugin, while mm -hmm. they've become normative in yeah. the Kremlin, just as you said, are really opposed by um, influential members of the Russian diplomatic like service. Like yeah. Right. Yeah. And where do you, how strong is that opposition to the project of Dugin? Um, so again, it's like the Orthodox Church, it's a matter of convenience. Putin uses uh, Neo-Eurasianism as a unifying force when he needs to. And if you remember last year, he had a huge falling out with Dugan. Dugan was fired from his position at Moscow State University. Uh, Dugan was quite literally exiled. It's, it was kind of funny. Uh, but uh, he, he uses him when needed, and then whatever will expansion of power. So, you know, it's not some spiritual longing the way that uh, the Soviets had for communism, you know, if you can even use spiritual with, with the word communism, but um, it's, it's much more rooted in a more oddly parochial interest of Russian power and, um, you know, returning the power of the czars um, with Putin being the czar. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a pendulum. You're never going to be able to, this is, I think, one of the problems, I think, actually, you said something, this dichotomy that exists in D.C., and I've known it does, because I go to these events, and I hear, it's, it's like, well, you're skeptic of Russia, or you're pro-engagement, and I, I'm actually a skeptic of Russia, but I'm also pro-engagement, because they're not, they're kind of a big deal. You can't, you know, ignoring the 300-pound elephant in the room is not the smartest move, um, in my first talk here at IWP a couple months ago, they were going to throw tomatoes at me, I thought, because uh, I actually said that the French and German position is reasonable. Hey, let's let, uh, loosen some of these sanctions and try to normalize the economic situation in, in Europe. Uh, my argument was we should be focusing on strengthening Poland and the Baltic states militarily, and that because that will deter Russia. The reason that, you know, Angelo Cotevilla at American Greatness in December wrote a fantastic essay about how the only reason Putin's doing what he's doing in Europe is because the doors have been left open. In the, in the Baltic, in the Mediterranean, now the Arctic, the doors have been left open. And all we have to do for a very little amount is close those doors. So we maybe, I don't know, and on the extreme end, maybe give Poland a nuclear arsenal. Maybe start empowering the Baltic states to stand up. Because you'll find the Eastern Europeans are very much interested in resisting Russia. It's the Western Europeans. It's the French and the Germans who are going, eh, you know. So, there's a way we can have our cake and eat it in this in this world, and that is uh, 
you know, strengthen, our, strengthen those parts of Europe that want to, to deter Russia and allow for the business communities of Europe to still do business. Give the Russians an out. Sun Tzu always talked about when you have a surrounded enemy, the worst possible thing is to close off all avenues. Open one avenue that you know they can get through that you maybe have a shot at. And, and remember, the, the budding protests in Russia today, um, uh, that, there's, that, that it's not an accident that Putin created this new national security force. It's 400,000 troops strong. It's larger, I believe. It's the largest national security force they've had. And it's a national guard, basically. Zolotov is commanding it. They are expecting really, really bad fallout. Because, I mean, if I were living under Putin, I'd be upset too. But um, I, am, I, I am skeptical. And, I, and what I said in my, my first and second talk here is American policymakers had better start figuring out a contingency plan for the next 20, 30 years when Russia collapses and you've got 12 or 13 new republics with nukes looking for ways to stay afloat. We, you think the Ottoman Empire dissolution was bad? You think the collapse of the Soviet Union was bad? Let me tell you something. Um, we avoided a lot of the heartaches of what could have happened in, in the collapse of the Soviet Union because we still had a reliable partner in Moscow. Russia collapses now, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be a bunch of new, new countries, a new, bunch of new stands showing up. And they're, you know, they're not going to be easy to deal with. So, but... Um, I don't know. I think that, I hope that does that answer your question. I hope I answered everybody's question. Oh, okay. Um, so I think Kevin's pulling, pulling the pulling the crane here. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you all.